Back in Matthew 23, Jesus' warning to the nation of Israel, if you would join me at the throne of grace and let's ask God to make the most of this last session of the day. Now, Father, as we once again open your word, it is our prayer that our souls would be set free from any distractions, any interference, uh, any outside thoughts or intrusions that might keep us from the message that your spirit has for us. We pray that on every soul there will be engraved a message that will remain, a message that will have an impact for the transformation of that life. We know that you reveal your glory both in your deliverance and in your judgment. We know that our nation stands under the indictment of your holiness and the judgment of your wrath. And yet, Father, we realize that like Habakkuk, we are here at this time. We are here for such a time as this because you have chosen to use your people to participate in your plan. So help us equip ourselves as we look at these passages here at the close of the day. It's been a long day, and no doubt many are weary, uh, but we do pray that you'll stir us up and help us to be receptive to the message that you have for us now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, the major woe passage in the entire Bible None could have been spoken by a greater spokesman. The Lord Jesus Christ brings down an indictment on his nation. He aims that indictment at the spiritual leaders. And the indictment in this country will also go to the spiritual leaders who fail. Those of us who stand in positions of leadership and authority within the church, within the church body, are under greater responsibility, greater accountability. And it's the reason that James tells us in James chapter 3 that we should be very, very cautious about entering into the teaching ministry. We who teach and we who give expositions on the Word of God are going to be held to a much, much higher account, and we have to approach that office with fear and trembling. Through the years, I've seen many young men who wanted to be preachers, and I've never in my mind given them much account. Uh, when I see a young man who seems to be getting drug into the ministry, kicking and screaming and trying to get away, I figure that's probably a guy who might be able to make it. It is a dangerous profession and is filled with a multitude of snares and a multitude of pitfalls, and it has to be approached with a great deal of fear and trembling and trepidation. So Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees, and he keeps repeating the word hypocrite. Now, our word hypocrite comes from the Greek hupokitas, and it actually means someone who speaks from behind a mask. 
And it comes from the ancient Greek drama. You know that the Greeks loved their drama, and they would gather in the uh, Colosseums and, and the different uh, theaters that they had, arenas and so forth, to watch their dramas. But the problem was, if you were in the back seats way up at the top, and you're looking down, you can't see the expression on their faces. The actors are there on the stage, but they didn't have big screens to show their faces. And so what they did, they made up big masks for the actors to wear. And if an actor came out and he was supposed to be very happy, he would be holding the mask with a big smile. And you've seen the images, I'm sure, on television of the mask smiling and the mask frowning. That goes all the way back to Greek theater. So the actor might be holding the mask in front of himself that has the big smile, and yet he knows in the next scene the hero or the heroine gets killed, and actors being temperamental and emotional type people, kind of like musicians, I think, uh, here he is, he's already shedding tears over the terrible uh, drama that is about to take place where the, the uh, hero commits suicide or his girlfriend leaves him and goes off with someone else. So while he holds the mask that's smiling, behind it he's crying. He's a hypocrite. He's someone who's speaking behind a mask that is not real and not genuine. This is a terrible indictment from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ on the men who should have been the most honest, the most open, and the most faithful in the nation. He says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. It kind of sounds like different groups that we have today. It's more important to win you to their theological position or their church position or their denominational position than it is to win you to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find out that someone is a fellow believer and you want to begin just discussing with them how wonderful it is to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the next thing you know, you've got your back against the wall and here they are in front of you just pouring out whatever particular slant they might have on the way of salvation. So they travel land and sea to make a proselyte, but when they win him, they make him twice as much a son of hell as they are. You know, religion without faith is one of the most dangerous tools of Satan. Religion without faith will make you arrogant. It will make you hard-hearted. It will make you judgmental. It will make you uh, really impossible to discuss or even consider positions other than that which you have. And we have to be very, very careful of that. Every one of us should always be open to the fact I may be wrong in some area. Because all of us are. And we all need to be willing to be corrected if the Scripture convinces us that we are wrong in that area. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides, who says that whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated to perform it. You can tell what was important to them. Not the temple, but the gold. And how many churches now operate as a business. And how many churches make the central focus the money. Give, give, give every other message 
is about giving. Every new program is about giving. Everything is an issue of finance. It's an issue of public relations. It's an issue of winning people to our group so that we continue to prosper. And as we prosper, we build bigger and better churches, bigger and better buildings, gathering more and more people together. And yet the message that's essential, the message of salvation, I've even had Pastors and youth leaders tell me we don't want to give them the gospel yet because we'll scare them away. As a matter of fact, there's one national organization that works with young people, and that's kind of their mentality. We don't want to give the gospel. We'll scare them away. We'll bring them in. We'll give them music. We'll give them food. We'll play games. And we want them to get comfortable first, and then we'll give them the gospel. But as time goes on and year passes into year, the gospel is never brought in and... They get religion without faith. Verse 17, fools and blind, which is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, they say that it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is obligated to perform it. They had all kinds of rules and regulations that if you take an oath, some oaths are binding, some oaths are not binding. You can cross your fingers behind your back, you know, and get away with murder, as it were. He says, fools and blind in verse 19, which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Can you see why Jesus said the best thing to do is just don't take an oath? Let yes be yes and no be no. Say what you mean and mean what you say and leave it at that. We all know that the minute someone says, I swear to God, you know they're lying. Right? I swear to God I didn't do it. Okay, well, we know now that you did. By the way, that's what Peter did when he denied Jesus. Did you know that? He took an oath by the God of heaven that he didn't know Jesus Christ. And the God of heaven that he took the oath by was standing there being denied by him. Can you imagine what a terrible thing that was? Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. In other words, in order to be right, if they got a certain little packet of seeds, they would make sure that they made a tithe of a 10% of those seeds. Yet they were not concerned at all with issues of justice and issues of mercy and issues of faith. He says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, small things are not unimportant. They're just small things. Let small things be small things. Let great things be great things. Don't confuse them. Don't uh, put them in conflict with one another and just take care of all of them in their proper place and proper time. Verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You've heard that analogy used before, I'm sure. Woe to you, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. He's not talking about cups and platters that you use at a meal. He's talking about themselves. They are the vessel. You and I are the vessel that God wants to use. 
and to clean the outside of the vessel and make the outside look good while the inside is full of corruption only brings greater condemnation down on our head. Blind Pharisee, verse 26, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside of them may be clean. If you would just stop and think, and I don't say this to make you uncomfortable, but as we come together at a gathering like this, we spend a certain amount of time making ourselves presentable. Granted, some more than others. But hopefully we take a shower, we comb our hair, we brush our teeth, put on halfway decent clothes. I mean, I was raised in the generation where you never went to church without a suit. I always hated it, so I'm thankful I'm no longer in that situation. Whoever dreamed up the necktie, I'd like to find the guy and strangle him. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense that in order to be acceptable, you have to have a piece of cloth hanging from your neck. Amen, brother. Yeah. All right, I'm, I'm glad we're beyond that. But the point is we still spend a certain amount of time. And again, I don't do this to make you feel bad, but it's a reality. How much time did you spend before you walked in here this morning making sure the inside was prepared? Did you take time in the presence of God? Did you say, search me and know my heart, try me and know my ways, see if there's any evil way in me, convict me by the Holy Spirit? That thought that I held on to, that I should have rejected, that word that I spoke, that I shouldn't have spoken, that deed that I did, or the deed that I wish that I could have done. And how many of us allowed the Lord Jesus to do the last thing He did with His disciples and the thing that He stands by to do for us every moment of every day of our lives to be the ultimate servant to stoop down and wash our feet. Wash me and I'll be clean. Cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then my offerings will be acceptable in your sight. We don't think about it. And we're doing the very thing. We're actually playing the hypocrite that Jesus is talking about because we're making sure the outside looks good, but we're not even spending a moment of time to ask the Lord, is the inside clean? Are my motives right? Am I truly humble? Am I comparing myself to those around me? I know women seem to really worry a lot about whether someone else is wearing the same thing they're wearing. You could have 10 guys show up wearing exactly the same thing and they never think about it. Probably wouldn't even notice. <laughs> but we get caught up in things like this. And we need to spend that time. As I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when we approach the house of God, we should be very serious about what we're doing because we're really standing on holy ground. When this word is open, like Moses standing before the burning bush, we need to take the sandals off our feet and we need to recognize the reverence that's required. Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You can just imagine if you were a scribe or a Pharisee standing there in this crowd, knowing that all the other people are hearing the Lord Jesus Christ hold you up as examples of everything that is wrong in the nation I think you'd probably have been pretty uncomfortable and you can begin to understand why when it came time to call for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, they all joined in unison, crucify him. And by the way, think about this. When Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost and over 3,000 souls entered the kingdom of heaven, a lot of them were priests. A lot of them were these guys who had been indicted by Jesus Christ, who had been enraged by the just charges that were brought against them, and then later were humbled. As they began to observe the things that were happening, the rending of the veil, the darkness that shrouded the earth during the time that the Lord hung on the cross, and as He gave up His own spirit voluntarily, because never forget, the debt for your salvation and my salvation was paid when He died spiritually. After the spiritual death, after the debt that was paid, because what is spiritual death? Spiritual death is separation from God. And he wanted to make sure we understood that he was paying the debt in full when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you'll study carefully through Psalm 22, you will see that the seven statements Jesus made from the cross are all found in essence in Psalm 22. And then having paid the debt, He proclaimed, it is finished, tetelestai, which is what was written across a debt that had been paid in full. And the equivalent is that phrase that we use, paid in full. And then he released his spirit. His physical death was voluntary, and it was something that he actually brought on himself by simply releasing his spirit and giving up the ghost. These people must have felt very, very uncomfortable. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 29, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets, you adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers of them with the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, you're indicting yourselves. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. The picture that he has in mind with the terminology that he's using here is of a cup. And the cup is slowly filling. And you remember that we saw earlier in Habakkuk that judgment never falls on a nation until the appointed time. And we know from going back to Genesis chapter 15 as God spoke to Abraham and foretold the sufferings of the children of Israel in Egypt and he said they will not come out until the fourth generation because, do you remember the next phrase? The cup of the Amorites is not yet full. The cup that they were filling up, a cup of justice, a cup of judgment, had a point where it would be full, and when it was full, that judgment would fall. I would suggest to you that the cup of the United States of America is almost full. 
We look at the things that have happened in the last few years, three years, five years, ten years, and we can't believe all the stuff that's gone on, but it didn't start just yesterday. This has been going on for a long, long time, and we are eating the fruit of things that started I could say in the 1960s, but then I could go back further to the 1940s, and then I could go back further. The corruption in this country really began in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, our leaders began making unconstitutional laws. And we all suffer because of the unconstitutional laws they made, and one of them is called income tax. It's unconstitutional. Stop and think about this. Before 1913, you paid no tax. No tax. No income tax. No property tax. What you earned, you kept. What you had was yours, and no one could touch it. And then they started in with income tax, and it was only supposed to be two weeks to flatten the curve. <laughs> Because when they brought in income tax, it's because we were on the brink of World War I, and they said this is only going to last until we pay for the expenses of the war. And then, of course, the war was over, and it continued on. And then the corruption just began to eat away at the soul of this nation. Today... You can hold a constitution and you can read the constitution of the United States of America and you can find that our own government violates the constitution of this nation every single day. We've found, we proved it in Arizona, it's been proved in Georgia, it's been proved in other states, the fraud that took place in the 2020 election and the evidence is clear and not one court in the land up to this point will touch it. You know why? Because the people that hold all the power are the ones behind the corruption. And so as Habakkuk said, justice never goes forth. We have fellow patriots. You and I have people who are our brothers in the faith who are sitting in a gulag in Washington, D.C., some of them being guarded by guys from the Congo. And they've been sitting in that prison for a year and a half now, many without any charges being filed whatsoever. Some who have gone to court are looking at the possibility of 25 years in prison for walking into the people's house. And by the way, the two-ton doors that were opened up to let them in and the police that escorted them in, no one will explain how those doors, which had to be unlocked electronically from the inside. And many of these people are being starved. They're being beaten. One guy was beaten so badly he went blind in one eye. Many of them are spending six days a week in solitary confinement. And all of this is unconstitutional. And we have no justice department left. We have an injustice department. And no one who has apparently the power, the authority, the willingness, I don't know what it is. No one will deal with it. 
We can have looting and burning and plundering across this land for an entire summer, and amazingly, nobody gets arrested and goes to jail. And amazingly, as cities are being burned down, the police are told, ordered to stand down. Give them space to destroy and burn and pillage. We're in a terrible state. Not talking about Pennsylvania, I'm just saying condition of the country. We love your state. What do we have? We have cups that are clean on the outside. They're called politicians. They're called judges. They're called lawmakers. Any law that a government passes that applies to us and not them is unconstitutional. And they do it all the time. They exempt themselves from what they impose on us. I'm not going to rant on that anymore, but I think you get the point. Our country is on the brink of judgment. We are about to eat the fruit of our ways, and it is going to be a terrible price to pay, and it's going to touch every single one of us. However, remember that you and I are here to rescue what can be rescued. It's not my job to bring the justice. That's not my job. You know, my job is save the savable. Win those who are willing. Find those who have been humbled. Find souls that have had their eyes open to recognize the evil of the world in which they live and to realize that there must be an alternative to that evil and the alternative can only be found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're there for. We're there to rescue the perishing. And we need to pray for them. And by the way, we need to pray for our judges. We need to pray for our politicians. We need to pray for our congressmen and senators. We need to pray for our president because every one of them is a soul for whom Christ died. If you have not prayed for your enemies to come to a point of humility and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're failing your task as a believer. Because our prayers have impact. The righteous, the prayer of a, uh, effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And if we're not praying for them, we have no right to complain about the unjust policies that they impose on us. Their name should be coming up before the throne of God's grace on a daily basis, lifted up by the people of this country. And there are some people that are so odious to me that are in positions of leadership. I despise everything that they stand for. And I pray for them and I pray for them by name because I want to see them come to a saving knowledge of Christ and escape the hell they so richly deserve, which I deserve just as much. So join me in praying for this nation. He goes on to say then in verse 32, Fill up the measure of your father's guilt. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Is it possible for them to escape? Absolutely. But only through Christ. Therefore, indeed, and here we come down to the role of Habakkuk and the role that you and I have. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, 
And some of them you'll kill and crucify, and some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And this is happening around the world. And we used to talk about the persecution that we'd hear about in China and persecution in some places in Africa. The world is going to be stunned when the persecution starts here in America. There are still people all over the world, when we go there, they think America is a Christian country. They think all Americans go to church. They think the churches in America are full. They think that America is rich and powerful because of the godliness of her people. And it breaks our heart to have to tell them the truth about what's happened. And you can see their face. I'll never forget being in Nigeria and speaking to a young woman that was a young Christian lady there. And she was asking me, what is it like in America? Is it like living in a golden land? Is everything there just gilded with gold and silver? And, and are all of the people upright and righteous people? And I had to look in her face and say, no, I'm sorry, America has fallen far, far. And this has been 20 years ago. And I watched her face as I described to her conditions in this country, and I saw the brokenheartedness of her because she had had this ideal of this nation like a city on a hill that was sending out light into the darkness. And she looked down and she looked at me with the most awful, terrified look on her face. And she said, if America falls, what will happen to us? What will happen to the rest of us? Because what persecution there is in other countries is, has been, I will say up until now, has been held back because they feared this country. And we had people tell us in various places that we went that we were safe there and that they were safe from persecution because people feared the leader that we had in charge. And now we have a buffoon. <laughs> and a criminal. And the world knows it. And they're beginning to make moves and there are nations that are more powerful than we are, not because they have more of the material things, they have iron in their soul. It's something that we've lost. Well, I don't want to depress you too much. I send you prophets and scribes and wise men that you will kill and crucify, verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Abel was the first one murdered in the history of the human race to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, and here's the key, you'll remember God told Habakkuk, it'll all happen at the appointed time. And here Jesus said, I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. No one listening to him could have imagined how horrible 70 AD would be. When the Romans came and surrounded the city, they besieged the city and factions within the city did exactly like Christian factions will probably do in this country. And they started fighting each other instead of fighting together. And 
a man by the name of Peter the Zealot burned the grain supply that could have fed them for three years, and the famine began in the city. And as Josephus records for us in his Wars of the Jews, he was a prisoner of war outside the city walls, and he kept a record of what happened. And he said when they broke into the city, they found the remnants of women who had cooked and eaten their own children. They couldn't have imagined. I told you that Jesus and the Father usually speak in undertones. But get this, my friends, because this is what I'm going to leave you with. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, our Lord who wept over the city, our Lord who knew what He was about to go through, expresses the anguish of His soul over a nation that would not let him in, over hearts that were closed to his offer of peace with God. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't able. Right? You weren't able? You weren't willing. See, there are people who teach it the other way. That they weren't able, that they couldn't have chosen otherwise. Jesus says differently. He says, I wanted. What does He mean, I wanted? What does He mean when He says, I send you? What He's saying is all through the history of the entire nation, every prophet that came to them with a true message was personally sent by Him. Every prophet that came to them and warned them, every prophet that appealed to them to repent and turn back to the Lord with an attitude of humility and faith was sent personally by Him. They were His emissaries. And he watched as year after year and decade after decade and century after century of rejection and rebuff and persecution against those people that he sent finally filled up the cup of their wrath. It took the Amorites and the Canaanites four centuries to fill the cup of their wrath. Israel lasted a little longer took them a thousand years. He says in verse 38, See, your house is left you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after our Lord uttered these words, he walked out of the temple. He went out through the eastern gate. Some of you have been in Israel, and you know the eastern gate that is now sealed. Jesus Christ walked out that gate, went up on the Mount of Olives, and sat down. And we begin Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, where His disciples come and say, when is all this going to happen? And He begins laying it out. 
He's talking about two different times. One is immediate, 70 AD. It's within 40 years. One is distant. It's still yet future, but it will be the ultimate destruction of those who rebel and reject him. And why is that so important? Because the prophet Ezekiel, who also warned his nation, he was one of the captives that was taken by the Babylonians, and he kept warning his nation, even in captivity, repent, turn back, open your hearts, receive grace, receive truth. And God showed him a vision, and in the vision he saw the glory of God standing in the temple. And then he saw as the corruption of the nation continued, the glory of God began to retreat from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple. And there was a pause as the glory of God remained there, waiting, looking, longing for a receptive attitude and a humbling of the people. But there was none. And so the glory of God passes out the eastern gate and goes and sits on the Mount of Olives. What was the prophet Ezekiel seeing? He saw this right here. Because that glory was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he walked out of this temple, he never came back. His next act in the temple was when he ripped that veil from top to bottom. And by that declared that the nation and the worship of the nation was no longer acceptable to God. I hope and pray, my friends, that we don't see this in our country. My soul bleeds for America. When I read our history, which is no longer taught, when I see a nation that once could have two people stand before a judge on equal ground, one could be the President of the United States, one could be a poor dirt farmer, the law applied the same to everyone. There was justice in the land. There was righteousness in the land. No, we've never been perfect. No nation ever will be perfect. But we were prospered by God, and from a small ragtag bunch of people in some scattered colonies came the greatest nation next to Israel that the world has ever seen. And there was freedom in the land. And from freedom came prosperity, and from prosperity came rich blessing, and from rich blessing we responded the way people always respond, we became complacent. And in our complacency, we started tolerating evil. We stopped standing up to it. We began accepting what our men, fighting men, went overseas and died. And I say men, because I'll say it until I'm blue in the face, women have no place on the front lines. No man who's a real man wants to put a woman on the front lines. It's evil. We are here to guard, to protect the treasures of the ladies that God give us to be the homemakers and the child bearers and the child raisers. We don't do it any longer. So this judgment's coming our way. But never forget that wherever judgment's proclaimed, there's always the offer. And the offer may not be accepted by the nation, but it can be accepted by you and I, and that is I will not be a part of what is bringing judgment on this country. 
I will not participate in the evil that is bringing the wrath of God on the United States of America. And that means that boys are boys and girls are girls. And no matter how psychotic you may be or how much you want to play word games in your mind, you're never going to change it. And we need to also grieve for those who have been deceived by all of this because their souls pay a price as well. Well, who knows, I may have just gotten myself in someone's sights or find my way into a prison cell someday, but the truth's the truth, and we can't change it. My friends, could I urge you, let's do two things. Let's make sure, number one, that we are free of those things that are bringing judgment on this country. Let's cleanse our lives. Let's purify our hearts. Let's pray for the washing and the cleansing of the Spirit of God in our lives. And then let's make America live for all of the greatness of the ideal as it's come down to us through the ages. Let's make sure it lives with us. Let justice and peace and freedom ring in our own soul because we know the source of justice and peace and freedom, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then let's do our best to proclaim liberty across the land. Liberty comes from liberation, and liberation can only come from a liberator, and the only liberator that can liberate the soul of a human being out of the clutches and the chains of Satan is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let freedom ring in our hearts and let freedom ring across this land. That is my prayer, and I'll close with that. We'll see you tomorrow morning. I hope you have a wonderful evening. And uh, once again, if we can clear the tables, uh, and don't forget that the band is going to come and sing us one more song before we go our way. Father, thank you for these wonderful people who have come here, put up with me all through last evening and today. And Father, I know that I am far from the best spokesman that you have, but you've given me this opportunity, and I pray that somehow, God, the Holy Spirit will take my weak and feeble efforts and use them to change minds and hearts and souls. I pray, Heavenly Father, that there will be a revival within this nation. If it only happens among those who are here, it can change the course of history. Elijah prayed thinking he was the last one that was faithful and found out there were 7,000 out there who had not bowed the knee to Baal and God had his own army that he was preparing for just the proper time. So let us be a part of that army and let us play the part you have for us to play in these perilous times in which we live. Have mercy on America. But Father, when judgment needs to come, let it come with refining fire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.